This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 61, recorded on February 10th, 2017. I think this is the first one for this calendar year. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here with one of my now-getting-perennial co-hosts, Dr. Ryan Roberts. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. Thanks, Tim. And today we have a special guest with us, uh, Dr. Matthew Breen. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you for being here. It says here that you are a professor of genomics and the Oscar J. Fletcher Distinguished Professor of Comparative Oncology Genetics in the Department of Molecular Biomedical Sciences at the North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. That's a mouthful. I couldn't say it all at once without stumbling. (laughs) You were visiting us uh, today and just shared a fantastic seminar with us that we were all very thrilled about, and we are excited to discuss some of the materials that you were talking about today. I think before we get to that, we always like to hear from our guests about their background, how they got interested in in what they're doing, maybe where you trained, if there was any particular mentors that were important to you that led you to where you are today. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised and educated in England. I did my PhD in Liverpool and then did a postdoc at the UK Medical Research Council's Human Genetics Unit when the <clears throat> excuse me, when the Human Genome Project first started back in the around 1989-1990. I did that for a couple of years and then because my PhD was on kind of the bridge between animal and human cytogenetics, I then went to work in Australia for the Australian thoroughbred racehorse industry developing DNA-based parentage testing for thoroughbred racehorses and still maintained an interest in chromosomal rearrangements that were very obvious to find in human cancers and trying to determine if they were present in animal cancers. What city in Australia? In Brisbane. It was at the University of Queensland. Nice. So I stayed there for about, I think, three, four years. A little tropical there. Yeah. And <laughs> warmer than Columbus? <laughs> well, and with no air conditioning. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I think around 1995, six, moved back to England and worked for uh, a small charity in Newmarket just outside Cambridge. Again, working on horses and dogs. And that's really when the my primary interest in dogs started to move faster because I spent a lot of time working at what was then called the Sanger Centre and is now called the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, where colleagues there helped us to develop some of the molecular tools that really allowed us to start comparing, on a gross level, how the dog and human genomes compared. So how can we look at a dog genome, or the organization of a dog genome, and see how does it, which parts of which dog chromosomes are related to which parts of which human chromosomes, which meant, from a simplistic way, when people have cancer, whether they're children or adults, we often see rearrangements or changes to their genetic organization. And what we did is track down that we saw 
the same organizational changes in dog cancers. And that, that was when we had very crude tools, very crude, looking but, at cytogenetics, yeah, chromosomes. Right. So a very low, sequence. yeah, very low resolution. But then I moved over to the U.S. in 2002, and by 2004, the National Institutes of Health had seen the light and provided funding to do a high-quality whole genome sequence of the domestic dog. And that was, I think, published online, actually published in Nature on December the 8th, 2015, I think. And that really, it was made publicly available, I think, in June, July the 14th. But it really provided the catalyst for lots of people to say, oh, hey, so now we have a good genome sequence of the dog. We can now start to drill down and do a lot of what's now known the comparative bioinformatics we see between humans and dogs and mice and now... 100 plus other vertebrate species, we are in a position now to develop, or we have developed the really highly sophisticated tools to look at dog cancers and just ask, you know what, how similar are dog cancers at the molecular level to the corresponding diseases in people? And the data that we have and that others have and that are still emerging say, well, in some cases, remarkably similar. Let me ask you a couple of questions. So what species of dog was the first one sequenced? The the breed of dog that was sequenced initially was a boxer. Aha. I have two boxers at home. Is <laughs> <laughs> that a loaded question? Right. No, I didn't realize that. But uh and so that was a, that was relatively recently it sounds like. 2000 uh, yeah. yeah, I think the the process of selection went along the lines of let's try and find a breed of dog that has a relatively high level of homozygosity. Yep. As in, w- without getting too complicated, we wanted to find a dog that would be relatively easy to sequence, and the boxer just happens to fit that, or that particular box happened to fit that mold. Yeah, all my boxers, I'm afraid, of, that, that, have, that have passed away, have passed away from cancer, yeah. not unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. What are some of the numbers that you shared with us during your talk about mm-hmm. the incidence of cancer in dogs and how prevalent it is and why, you know... There's two reasons I think we should be interested in this. One is what can we learn about human cancer, but you know, the other is just what about taking care oh, of yeah, our pets. For sure. Yeah. So if you ignore, if you're agnostic to breed, and we just look across the pet dog population or the whole the whole species of dog, it's the the numbers are that approximately 25 percent, so one in four of all dogs at some stage in their lifespan will develop a cancer. Now, it may not be that that cancer will kill that dog. It could be a cancer that's relatively benign and therefore is not likely to be life-threatening. But if a dog lives to be aged 10 or over, 50% of dogs will die from cancer. That's an amazing number. You know, we think, although we are pediatric oncologists, so we don't think this, but most people think cancer is a disease of old age. Mm-hmm. It takes years and years and years to accumulate mm-hmm. many of the mutations. Dogs don't live that long. So is this um, seven-year rule of a dog's year to a human year is that what's going on here why are they getting so many cancers so that rule so the the first thing i would say there is that rule of seven years to one year depends on which breed it is is some smaller dogs can live 15 20 years some larger dogs are lucky if they if they get to seven or eight years across all dogs i think a tip, depending on the type of cancer again but the typical age of onset or at least of diagnosis of cancers in dogs it is a middle to older age type of scenario where it's usually six, seven, eight years of age. So as a proportion of their life, it's probably the equivalent of humans at 50, 60 years of age. However, 
there are very many occurrences of dogs being diagnosed with highly aggressive cancers while they still have their puppy fur. I'm talking dogs that are three months old, six months old, nine months old, that are diagnosed with leukemias, solid tumours, a whole myriad of cancers that you would ordinarily think are the kind of cancers you might expect to see in a child as opposed to an adult. So we do see this kind of distribution of some cancers do affect puppies and some cancers do affect middle-aged to older dogs with a dip in the middle. So is the thinking the same for humans in that the older ones are due to accumulation of mutations and the younger ones are due to developmental abnormalities? And that is exactly what we are looking at now, is when we can actually manage to find those dogs that are unfortunately diagnosed with cancers at a young age. We look at the genetics of those dogs, but not just the changes that we see in the cancer. We also look at their inherited DNA to find out whether they've actually unfortunately inherited a a risk factor or a predisposition to a particular cancer. And in some cases, yes, we do find them. And in other cases, we don't. But I think it needs a much broader study, focused broader study to actually tackle that. And how much of it is due to inbreeding? So what's the difference in cancer incidence between inbred dogs and dogs who are mixed? And again, that's always that's always a bit of a controversial question. But actually, if you take out, so 50% of the cancer diagnoses in the U.S. are in mixed breed dogs. So it's not that mixed breed dogs don't get cancer. It's not that purebred dogs have a higher risk of all cancers. But what we do find is that certain breeds of dogs do have a higher incidence of certain types of cancer. So if you look at all breeds and call that a factor of one, then if you were looking at something like osteosarcoma, so bone cancer, if you are a a large breed or a giant breed, like an Irish wolfhound or a Scottish deerhound, or even the, the medium to large, like a Rottweiler, golden retrievers, they have a relatively high incidence of bone cancer compared to the little breeds, like a Yorkshire Terrier and a Jack Russell. We don't, we, we see it, but not, it's not common. If you look at um, diseases like bladder cancers, Scottish Terriers are the, probably the most well-known breed for developing bladder cancers, and they are allegedly about 18 times more likely to develop bladder cancer than any other breed. Jumping back to osteosarcoma, those giant breeds like a Scottish uh, Scottish Deerhound, Irish Wolfhound, that number's been placed at over a hundredfold the risk than a typical breed. So within a pure breed of dog, the fact that they are being diagnosed with very specific types of cancer does suggest that they have inherited a predisposition either to that cancer or to some genetic insult to the genome that would introduce that cancer. So one last question before we get to you, Ryan. Oh, no, you're um, fine. Th- so does that mean, do you think, that we're so- when we're selecting for s- certain phenotypes in a-, in a given breed, we like the way they look or the way they behave, that we're selecting for specific cancer genes that are sort of going along with the genes that encode those phenotypes, or are we just enriching for homozygosity and uncovering tumor suppressor genes? Yeah, and that's a great question, and I'm not sure anybody really knows the answer, other than when we're selecting for, for example, larger breeds, we're obviously selecting for a bigger body size. The bones in those dogs, you think about a newborn puppy, can be can sit in the palm of your hand, and if it's something like an Irish wolfhound, by the time it's 18 months old, it would knock you over. These dogs grow at a tremendous rate. So they, they, it could well be that they've just got very, very rapidly accelerated growth patterns. We know the difference between big breeds and little breeds can be down to just 
one gene, for instance. But what we often find is, if it was just as simple as golden retrievers, for instance, golden retrievers, about 55% of all golden retrievers die from cancer. But that might suggest, well, is it something to do with the golden colour of their coat? People have looked at that, and there's, there are no real genes around that mm. particular phenotype. So it may be that what we see as a visual appearance of a dog is actually not as related to the development of a cancer as it is genes in the vicinity or that just happen to be associated with the traits that we're not really selecting for, but somehow they get brought along with that phenotype. If what you said about the cell dividing so many times is, is a risk, then I would expect the cancer to occur during that growth period or shortly mm-hmm. thereafter as opposed to older age. Is that what you see in the large breed dogs? Yeah, so when we look at when I look at this data that we've got for osteosarcoma, bone cancer in giant breed in what ultimately become what we call large giant breeds, yes we do see bone cancer in puppies. But we also see bone cancer that occurs when they're seven, eight years of age. So it would make sense that they're probably caused by different reasons. And, and how that, many cases of cancer in dogs are there every year in the United States? It's well the the published data show that I think in 2014 it was about 4.2 million. In 2016, the leading veterinary oncologists in the nation are now saying the number's closer to 6 million each year. Which is five times humans. It's a, it's a huge number. Yeah. So I think, you know, I've seen you speak several times and you always like to end your talks with a particular slide. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what what you say with that and what you're tr- what you mean and what the message is. So this is the this is the phrase that I have about when I think about how much money and how much resources and how much human patient emotion and care goes into looking after human patients with cancer. It's difficult to comprehend that we cannot combat cancer in a way that will help save more people's lives. And especially when thinking about young, young children. My personal belief, and which I think is borne out by our data now, thankfully, is that when we look at the changes in cancer cells in dogs, the fact that we do see many of the changes that we also see in cancer cells from people is what leads me to say that kind of the future of cancer biology is really looking to nature to reveal some of her most intriguing puzzles about cancer. And I think our four-legged best friends are actually providing us with some answers that will help us to to really drill down and understand more about cancer than we can ever learn just looking at ourselves. It's a classic mechanism of if you look at two sides of a coin, you see the whole coin. And I think that cancer in dogs and cancer in people are two sides of a coin, but it's the same currency. That sounds yeah, that was, that was great. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting, and I think our readers might be interested that this goes beyond just learning about what causes these cancers, right? But but also extends to how we treat them. Yeah. So when you think about, and I'm not a veterinary oncologist, so I'll put that out there, but I know that my veterinary oncology colleagues, when they reach to the shelf for a compound to treat a dog with cancer, it's the same drugs that they will use to treat humans with cancer and therefore that gives us an opportunity that if we can identify some feature of a dog cancer that will help us to develop a new therapy that therapy can first be applied to our dogs to help the dogs but our goal in comparative oncology is also to see that benefit translate across to your human patients in a way that's much faster 
than using just traditional modalities for moving it through the various platforms to get approval. One of the things we probably ought to clarify while we're talking about treatment of dog cancer, both at your institution here at Ohio State, at, at, around the country, we're talking about treating people's pets. That's right. These are patients. We're not talking about laboratory animals yes. or experimentation. Yes, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you pointed that out because, yes, that's exactly right. We are not talking about giving dogs cancer. We are not talking about dogs held in a laboratory environment that are, you know, I wouldn't get involved in that and most of my colleagues have want nothing to do with that. What happens is these are, these are people's pets. These are people, these are dogs that live in our homes with us. And therefore one of the major advantages to think about cancer in dogs is that, as I said in my talk, when the dogs breathe the same air, they drink the same water. And when you throw a ball across the park, and your child or your grandchild and that dog run across the grass, their body is exposed to exactly the same whatever chemicals have been put on the grass, for example, as each other. So if there are any environmental concerns that potentially impact a human being, it makes sense that they are, at the same time, impacting the dogs that live with that human being. People bring their dogs to work. People take their dogs on vacation. They are the true sentinel species for diseases, not just cancers, but certainly cancers in particular, developing in people. So does that mean there's a higher incidence of cancer in dogs in households where there's people with cancer? Now that that, that is a leading but interesting question, is that we get phone calls every week from people. We recruit canine cancer patients all the time. My lab in North Carolina recruits them all the time. And I have lost count, quite frankly, of two things. Number one, the number of times that somebody will call me or call my lab and say they would like to submit a sample from their dog because their dog's just been diagnosed with, for example, lymphoma. And halfway through the conversation will say, and it's really distressing because my husband was diagnosed with lymphoma six months ago. The second thing that's always, that happens a lot is we will receive another call from somebody else two weeks later and my dog's just been diagnosed with lymphoma, and it turns out that that dog is related to the dog that called us, well, the dog didn't call us, the owner called about that dog two weeks previously to that. Even though those two dogs have been raised in completely different parts of the nation, they're from the same litter, and they're being diagnosed with the same type of cancer within a couple of months of each other. Now, we have to be careful, as we always say in medicine, something can be true, the other thing can be true, but they can be unrelated. Yeah. So yeah. true, true, and unrelated, so, or is there a correlation? Yeah, it's the same thing as trending towards significance, yeah. <laughs> whatever that means. So yeah, but we do get, there are many, many cases, dozens and dozens of cases, which I just don't think is enough to make it a valid a hypothesis, but we are seeing, for example, we see certain um, groups of people that will contact us because they've been diagnosed with a cancer and now my dog's being diagnosed with a cancer, but that doesn't mean they're connected. It just, that could be a, a population sampling bias. Could it be a coincidence? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Or it could be yeah. a cause. We but we know. still investigate it. One of the challenges of studying animal diseases is the tools available, particularly, for example, immunologic tools mm -hmm. to look at, because the biologics are a bit different often, so antibodies that you use to stain a human tissue may not cross-react with a given species. Are there a growing number and are there adequate numbers of tools available to study cancers in dogs? Or you put up some slides with lots of different species of animals, not just dogs. So how about those others? How challenging. Yeah, that's a great question. We have in the, so the, the, 
there has to be a reason to develop the tools. And the reason is for most of the for-profit corporations, it has to generate revenue for them. They're not really interested in it just because it provides a research tool. They have to, it's a commercial enterprise, so they have to have a return on their investment in developing. That's one of the reasons why we tend to put the dog first, because it's the, it's the animal species that we are most closely connected to. Cat's probably not far behind, but the dog probably stays at the top of the list. So we're most willing to spend our money on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people people spend. Well, as I said, this the twenty sixteen. The number when it finally comes in is expected to be more than twenty billion dollars on veterinary healthcare for their dogs, and that is not kenneling and trimming and grooming and food. That's just the amount of money they pay to the veterinary healthcare. So there is an increasing number of new tools for certainly dogs being developed by academic centers in collaboration with pharmaceutical companies because the pharmaceutical company sees an opportunity for increased revenue in the veterinary space as we call it but they also see that translational potential for moving to apply new benefits to humans so you well and i would say that's i mean that's one of the great gifts that we've had from Mm -hmm. some of the kind of the work that you and others have done Mm -hmm. is once we understand how similar our biology is, mm-hmm. we can start to understand how similar medical treatment and diagnosis and things like that are. And I think that's the whole movement behind this integrated medicine for, for dogs and humans. And I think that we both stand to benefit, don't we? Yeah. And we do have to also consider that because of the way in which certainly purebred dogs have been bred, a Yorkshire Terrier looks nothing like an Irish Wolfhound. So it could be that a disease that affects a Yorkshire Terrier could be treated effectively, but the disease may not even occur in Irish Wolfhounds, or the therapy that's developed, even if Irish Wolfhounds have it, they may not respond to that therapy. So it's actually very important to consider, for example, therapies that are developed for dogs may not have an impact on cats. So it really is important to look at humans and dogs in the same mixing bowl, effectively, and determine whether any therapeutic development that is made how much does it need to be tweaked to have that cross-species benefit, which is why it's so important that the the human academic medical centres and the veterinary academical medical centres play nicely together in the proverbial sandbox. Yeah, we're fortunate to have a large centre here as well. Yeah. Ryan knows as he works with our vet school. I've had lots of wonderful collaborations with mm-hmm. my veterinary colleagues. And you're always tweeting about raising money for That's right. uh, pet uh, organizations. That's right. And I noticed here that you have expanded way beyond dogs, as I kind of hinted to. You're also a charter member of the Sea Lion Cancer Consortium. Can that's you tell right. us about that or, or other? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, that's a fascinating story because it turns out that California sea lions have an incredibly high frequency of cancer. And I work with a group over in Sausalito called the Marie, at the Marie Mammal Center. And part of their job and their volunteers is to go and rescue beached sea lions that wash up on the, on the shore and either find out how they died, if they're dead, or if they're still alive, rehabilitate them, try and get them healthy and put them back in the ocean. But it turns out that about 20% of all these sea lions at the time they are rescued have cancer. And over 85% of those, so almost 17% of all the sea lions that they rescue, have the same type of highly aggressive urogenital carcinoma. And the way I always describe it to students that I talk to is, when you're doing a necropsy and you do that incision from 
top to bottom and pull back the skin, it it looks as though somebody has packed their abdominal cavity full of raw cauliflower. Wow. It is horrific to see. And what we've done is we've genomically profiled some of the tumours from these California sea lions and shown that the same types of genetic changes occur in sea lions with urogenital carcinomas as we see in dogs with urogenital carcinomas as we see in humans with urogenital carcinomas. So think about it as a Venn diagram and the sea lion is another circle on the Venn diagram. But what's even more interesting there is when we had the sea lions tested for the presence of bioaccumulated organochlorines, which are fat-soluble, so a sea lion gets blubber, the blubber levels of organochlorines can be rather high. Now, what we think happens is the sea lions probably not necessarily die from the cancer. What happens is the sea lion in the ocean, so I'm told by my marine mammal veterinarians, is that they, when there are algal blooms that form <coughs> on the Pacific coast, the sea lion end up ingesting the algae, and they have a, what's called a demoic acid toxicity. And that demoic acid toxicity can cause them to have seizures or other ill conditions. And they either drown and wash up, or they're very, they can get very sick. And when they're sick, of course, they don't eat. And when they don't eat, they live off their blubber. When they live off their blubber, the bioaccumulated organochlorines are no longer soluble. So they become insolubilized and end up getting ex presumably excreted through various other, the blood system through the kidneys and the liver and then excreted through the urine. One of the things that we're concerned about with some of the dogs that we see is we are seeing an increasing number of overweight dogs with bladder cancer. So one of the things we're looking at now is, are we actually seeing accumulation of organochlorines in the fat tissue, adipose tissue of dogs associated with those that have urothelial carcinomas and the same thing in people? Am I correct in thinking that these organochlorines are not natural? They are not natural. They are allegedly from... Um, waste products. Waste <laughs> <laughs> industry. Uh, they, they, are, they are allegedly from, yes, they are disposal. It's disposal of these products in the ocean by of, over time. humanity. Yes. You did show, as I mentioned, slides of lots of other species. Other. Mm -hmm. Are you guys involved in studying cancer and other types of animals? Oh, yeah. So we look at... We have a strong interest in looking at cancer in wildlife species because they are not living in our environment. They are living in their native environment. So we've recently looked at various cancers that affect free-ranging wolves because we can use the same tools for the wolves that we can use for the dogs because they're closer related. And surprisingly, when we look at cancers that we see in free-ranging wolves, they are remarkably similar to the genomic profiles that we see in pet dogs that have the same cancers, but there are some subtle differences. So where there are differences in pet dogs versus the wolves, what we have to establish is whether that's a breed-related difference or whether it's actually a more human-environmental interaction difference. So it's just another mechanism of adding another mesh to the filter to identify what may be associated with cause. But again, they're spontaneous diseases, but they've had nothing to do with human intervention. Well, it's really a fascinating field. Obviously, a lot to learn from man's best friend mm -hmm. and and his or her cousins and relatives <laughs> and, and others, um, both for pediatric cancer and for adult cancers. What This is my final question. I don't know if you have any Sorry. final ones, Ryan, but my final question is really, what do you think needs to happen 
in order to leverage and accelerate progress? Is it we need to? I think some of our listeners are trainees. Do we need more people going into this field? What? Do, what? And if they, if so, what should they be studying? Do they need to be vets? Can they do it from the medical side or the PhD side? What really needs to happen as a community to catalyze this work? I think that's already started, and I think the very first step, which is there, is 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 the conversation. Is I have given so many presentations to audiences comprising of mainly MDs, and one of the very first questions that somebody always asks within five minutes is, "Hey, what are you telling me? Dogs get cancer?" And then five minutes after that, somebody raises their hand and says, oh, and people pay to treat them. So I think the conversation is now being had. The field of comparative oncology really took a change. And I'm going to use Ryan as an example is those of us in the veterinary profession can say all we like. But until people like Ryan in the human medical world stand up and say to their peers, listen, this is what's happening the human medical world listens more to their own than they do to the vets. So having the conversation, having a few people like Ryan that can stand up and say, I'm buying into this, I see this as a real potential and it's something we should look into, I think is the catalyst that helps bring more and more people on board. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you. I mean, because of the work that you've done, we I think we can do things like clinical trials faster and less... Yeah. Yeah. less expense and and help both us and our dogs i think with everything else it's about it's about communication and both sides of that equation want having the same vision to advance what we know and therefore improve duration and quality of life for the patient whether that patient is a dog or a human being that's great and I can uh, assure you that Ryan is uh, carrying the flag very well here and communicating it very well. So we're we're very happy about that. And it's been fantastic having you here. Thank it's you. A terrific topic. Thank you for visiting and sharing all of your insights. And to our listeners, I'm sure that Dr. Breen would be happy to answer questions. If you'd like to send us a question via email about it, we'll forward it on to him and get his response. Please send it to twippo at solvingkidscancer.org. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donald Lewinsky, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications. Also, thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, and the more we learn about our pets and and, uh, help them, uh, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight. Thanks for listening to this week's Pediatric Oncology.